But uh, it's great to be here. I'm still new enough in Vermont. If you're visiting with us, my wife and I moved here a few months ago. I'm still new enough that when I turned down to College Street and saw Lake Champlain in all its glory, I was still in awe of it, you know? I'm, I'm not taking anything for granted. I'm seeing the mountains. I'm seeing the beautiful lake. Uh, it's it's uh, amazing to be here. It's uh, I've been in and out of town a lot. Now I'm finally landed here, and I'm very excited yeah. to be preaching this morning. I appreciate the opportunity from Mike. And, uh, you know, we sang a song that if you've been around this fellowship for any amount of time, we've probably sung it a lot, right? Jesus is Lord. Yes. You know, and uh, that's why we're here ultimately, right? right? To worship God. And I'm going to take us into communion from this sermon, and uh, eventually we're going to meditate on the cross, but that's really the reason we're here. Right. But I want to take us on a little bit of a journey, Come on, journey. to when... <laughs> Come on, Journey. That takes me back to the 80s. That's like a rock band. Come on, Journey. Uh, but uh, I want to take us back to a time that maybe many of us don't think a lot about before the world really knew Jesus as Lord. Have you ever thought about what it was like to be around Jesus if you were in his physical family? What it was like for Jesus growing up, growing up around Jesus? And, you know, that really happened, right? You know, this is not the way I would have designed a Messiah coming down from the heavens to save the world. I think my movie version of that would be Jesus descending from clouds of glory, doing his thing on, his thing on earth, yes, dying for humanity, then ascending. It would have been something like that. Or it would have been something like Jesus, you know, is this miraculous kid that everyone constantly knows is the savior, future savior of the world, right? He's walking on the water in his bathtub, you know. His, no one's questioning that he's this miraculous being. You know, as we look in the Bible, that's actually not how it went. That's not how it went when Jesus was growing up. And actually, to me... This is one of the greatest proofs that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. That the resurrection is real. When you look at Jesus' family's response to him growing up and in his ministry. And I'm specifically going to focus on one of Jesus' brothers. So did you guys know, I think many of us know, that Jesus had a large family. How do we know that? Well, look in Matthew 13, 54. Matthew 13, I'm just going to kind of crank through this, guys. But Matthew 13, 54 says, Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. They were offended by Jesus because they knew where he came from. He didn't come down from the clouds. He grew up among them, right? Yes, he was born of a virgin. It was a miraculous birth, but he grew up as a baby in front of them. And as we're going to see, even his parents at times didn't know how to react when Jesus was becoming the Jesus we know. 
So verse 57, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his home. That interesting. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So what does this scripture tell us? So Jesus grew up in a big family. Okay. He had at least there were at least six kids besides Jesus. Right. Four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas, who later became known as Jude. And at least two of his sisters. Right. Because it said all of his sisters. Okay. So he had a big family. Right. And, you know, what's it like growing up in a big family? You know, how many of you had, a bro- had brothers or sisters growing up? How, uh, how many of you ever got mad at a brother or sister growing up? How many of you have ever gotten mad at your brother or sister even though they didn't do anything wrong to you? No, oh, none of you. You've never gotten mad at your brother and sister for no good reason? Never happened? How many of you ever got mad at your sister, brother or sister because they were too perfect? That ever happened? Never happened. Yeah. I'm sure that didn't happen in Jesus' household. You know, the cool thing that I can stand up and say before you all in complete clear conscience before God and all of you is I have never, ever, ever gotten mad or held a grudge towards my brother or sister. It's because I was an only child. That's right. Some of you saw that coming. Some of you saw that coming. Okay. But so growing up in a family, right, there's family dynamics, right? There those same family dynamics where there was irritation and stuff going on. That was happening in Jesus's family. Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't, you know, say, hey, I'd like your piece of pie, James. Please give it to me. Well, I'm not going to give that to you, James says. And he's like, yeah, but just so you know. Time is going to be based on me at some point. Can you give me your pie now? Right? At some point, history is going to mark the moment I was born and mark all of history before I was born or after I was born. Now will you give me your pie? Right? I don't think that happened. You know, and, and if Jesus had been able to say that, you know, I think James would have said, no, I, you know, you don't, you don't get my pie. Right? How do we know that that dynamic that that there was strange dynamics in the family at times with Jesus. How do we know? Well, we've got exactly one story in the Bible of Jesus as a young person, right? We've got one whole story when he was 12 years old, okay? Look in uh, Luke 2, verse 41. So are you getting a little bit of a... I'm trying to take you there, like taking, getting a picture of, of Jesus as an actual person growing up in an actual family. In fact, maybe this will help you. Zach, can you pop up uh, that first picture? So that is one of two first century homes that have been unearthed in Nazareth. Okay? And this is actually the one of the two that tradition says was actually Jesus' home Growing up, we don't know that. What we do know is that that is a first century home in Nazareth. So if Jesus didn't grow up there, maybe he walked by there. You know, I don't know. In the first century, I don't, I don't know if they had little seesaws or what the kids did back there. But, you know, if you walk by there, oh, that's where Jesus lives. That's where James lived. That's where our sisters lived. I mean, Jesus grew up in a home, right? He grew up with this family. 
And again, his family didn't always understand what was going on. Even Jesus' parents didn't always understand what was going on with Jesus. In Luke 2, verse 41, when Jesus was 12, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. I always think of home alone there, you know, kind of yeah. the, oh, you know, Jesus alone in a big city. The parents, it's probably more the parents grabbing their face, just going, oh, my goodness, we've traveled and we don't have one of our kids. Uh, after three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? That's more confusing if that's, a, you know, that's being said verbally without the capital F in father's house. Jesus, of course, right, was speaking of his father in heaven, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So his parents didn't get it. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Isn't that a cool window into Jesus as a youth? But again, it's not like his family knew, really understood what he was about to become. Have you guys, do you guys ever, uh, have you guys known anyone who became famous? Like really, really famous. Did you grow up with anyone who became famous? Yeah. Who'd you grow up with? Oh yeah, which ones? Oh, Jerry! Wow, that's that's cool, right? So I'm sure everyone saw talent in them, but people aren't, you know, just you know, getting them donuts as, as a kid because you're going to be amazing. I grew up with a famous person, Zach. Can you pop up? Uh, so that's John. How many of you guys know who those people are? Right? That's John Cusack, and that's his sister, Joan. Um, John's older brother, a year older, is named Bill. Bill's one of my best friends growing up in Evanston, a suburb of Chicago. And so, you know, I, we didn't know that one day John was going to have a star on the Walk of Fame, right? Go to the next picture. So the guy in the middle there, the tall guy in the yellow tie, that's Bill. That's my buddy. So... You know, I'd always just be going over to their house, and I realized it was a very artsy, it was a very fun, cool, artsy, creative household. In fact, their dad was in films. Um, John's sister, Anne, right there, is also in a lot of films and TV, blah, blah, blah. Joan is now that was the voice. Who's seen Toy Story? Right? So she's the voice of Jessie, you know, the cowgirl in Toy Story. She's been nominated for two Academy Awards. I mean, it's an accomplished family. I didn't know, you know, it was weird as a teen seeing John start to make movies when he was like 13, you know. 
But how did we react to that? We weren't like, John, you know, what do you need? Can I get you anything? You know, if John asks for something, it's like, John, get out of here. I'm, I'm hanging with Bill. You know, it's, no, no one's treated John any differently because he's special. He's the goal. It doesn't happen like that in real life, right? In real life, Jesus just was, was part of a big family. His mom and dad certainly understood that he was special, right? He was born in very special circumstances, right? But you can see here, even at 12, his parents were scratching their head like, man, what is going on with this kid? He just lets us go on and he just wants to hang out in the temple. Well, yeah, remember when he was announced, his birth was announced by angels and he was, you know, Mary, remember that? You remember? But that's human nature, isn't it? I mean, that's 12, 13 years later, and you're just living your life, guys. Jesus is an, another guy as a part of another family, another big family. And get, it didn't get any better from there. <laughs> as we look at Je- the beginnings of Jesus' ministry, his family didn't clue in for a while. Look at, uh, look at Mark 3, towards the beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry. <clears throat> in verse 20. So let's start focusing on how Jesus' family, specifically James and his brothers, were reacting to Jesus as he started his ministry. So Mark 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. So skip down to verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. So, you know, they they go to take charge of him. Now they've arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What a powerful statement for us that one day we could have the opportunity to be a part of Jesus' family. How cool is that? In the moment, that wasn't so cool for Jesus' family, right? They're going, oh, so what are we? Chopped liver, right? We need to take charge of this guy. He's causing riots. We don't... They are not getting it. I think there's also a part of it, if you'll notice, in every scripture we read about the family after Jesus was 12, you know who's not mentioned? Joseph. Mary's husband, right? He's not mentioned. A lot of scholars believe that Joseph had actually died at some point. Because he's, he's just never mentioned again. And so if that's the case, Jesus being the older brother from a cultural standpoint, would have been in charge of taking care of and providing for the family. So you have to understand what's going on here, how the family could be freaking out. Jesus is going off, gallivanting, preaching, causing, you know, you can't get in to see him. He's saying things like, we're, you know, everyone's as important as the family, you know, everyone can be in our family, just whoever's in God's will. You know, they're going, but you're the older brother. You're out roaming the countryside preaching, what about us? You can see how Mary and maybe the brothers are going, 
we got to rein this guy in here, you know? So they're, they're not getting it. Um, so look in verse in John 7. Let's look at one more example where clearly the family's not getting it and the brothers are not getting it. John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. What's going on here? His brothers are essentially mocking him. Now I want you to understand even culturally how interesting that is. How intensely they must have felt that. Because for you to say something like that to your older brother, right? This is your older brother. This wasn't older brothers talking to their younger brother saying, get it together, homeboy. You know? It wasn't that. It was younger brothers talking to their older brother which they're culturally demanded respect. You wouldn't normally speak to your older brother that way. Right. And go, hey, you want to be a public figure? Go show yourself, right? Show yourself so that your disciples may see the works you do because they didn't believe in him. They were essentially mocking him and going, come on, you got something? Well, sure, show the world. You're abandoning the family? You're not taking care of us? Well, what? Come on, big guy, show yourself. You know, I don't know if that's exactly the tone. I may be exaggerating a little bit. But what we know for sure is his brothers did not believe in him, right? Has that been fairly established? Yeah. Okay? And so, again, I want to focus on James. We're going to move on to, to, to James in a minute here. Let's go to John 19. Come on, Rob. Let's go, bro. So now we're going to go to the cross. So I want you to look at who is at the cross for a moment in the context of what we're talking about. In John 19, verse 25, it says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. I want you to think about this, guys. Jesus had a large family. He had four brothers. How many of those four blood brothers were at the cross? Zero. What does that tell you? Your brother is being publicly executed and you're not at the cross. That should tell you something about where their faith level, belief level, where they're at relationally with their brother. You know what? It should also, also should, should tell you something that Jesus did not arrange for his mother to be put in the care of one of his brothers. Jesus didn't say, Mom, James is going to take care of you now. He said, John, he said, Mom, John is going to take care of you. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? 
There had to be incredible spiritual qualities that Jesus loved about John. And so Jesus entrusting his mom to John's care, someone outside of the family, that's Jesus going, I'm going to take care of my mom's spiritual needs. I want to make sure my mom is protected spiritually for the rest of her life. Does that make sense? I'm not going to entrust her. to. And, and think about who John was, guys. What had John been doing the last three years? Roaming the countryside with Jesus. He wasn't a physician. He wasn't a tax collector. He probably wasn't raking in the dough. It wasn't a financial, probably wasn't a great financial arrangement. The only motivation for Jesus to entrust the care of his mother to John was a spiritual one. And that says a lot about John, and it also says a lot about where Jesus knew the hearts of his own brothers were. Okay? So now that I've established that his brothers, and particularly now we go to James, absolutely were not on board with Jesus, up and through the point of the cross. Is that pretty clear? Let's look in 1 Corinthians 15.3. Now a big change happens. A big change happens. And I put this to you guys that to me this is one of the greatest proofs that the resurrection actually happened. When I read this stuff, this builds my faith in who Jesus was in the cross and in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.3, this is Paul talking years later. He says, he's talking to the Corinthian church and reminding them, okay, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, right, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So guess what we figured out, what we found out from that one scripture? Jesus personally appeared to his brother. So how did that impact so how did that impact his brother? So I would say that that's a possible thing that might motivate me if I didn't believe in my brother was the savior of the world, knowing that he died and then seeing him resurrected, that might change my heart a little bit, right? That might change some things. What other possible event could have changed Jesus' brothers changed James from someone who didn't even show up when Jesus was being executed to one of the great leaders in the New Testament for the cause of Christ, for the cause of his brother. What could do it? I would say nothing but a resurrection appearance that Paul talks about. In fact, in Acts 1, verse 14, it says, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Hey, look at that. Post-resurrection, look at that. His whole family's on board. They're all in Jerusalem praying. 
waiting for something to happen that Jesus had said would happen, right? He told everyone to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit to do its thing, his thing. And so clearly that tells you something, right? His whole family's there in eager uh, anticipation in Jerusalem praying. But let's look at what James became. He became a well-known and respected leader in the church. He oversaw the church in Jerusalem, which was over, we know, well over 5,000 people. It was a huge church, right? An inauguration day of the church, they baptized 3,000, right? Or 2,000, right? And 3,000 were added later. And it, we, it was a massive church, and James led it. Paul respected him. He chose to consult, consult him, and only him. Soon as Paul was converted, he consulted James. Galatians 1.19. I saw none of the other apostles, Paul says, only James, the Lord's brother. Galatians 2.9. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. James is a pillar in the church now. Peter thought highly of him. Peter reported to him upon his release from prison around 44 A.D. in Acts 12, 17. I know I'm bopping out. I'm just citing scriptures here, guys. I know you can't flip to all these. I'll just read them. Acts 12, 17. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said. Then he left for another place. At a huge council, a huge pivotal moment in the church in Acts 15... Guess who spoke last ever after everyone talked, all the counsel was given? Who spoke last? James. In, verse, in chapter 15, verses, uh, verse 12, I think it is, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. James is the closer. James is the pillar. James is the one everyone deferred to. Everyone says their thing. James wraps it up. Acts 21.18. The next day Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. But let me cap it off with this. Let's look at what James himself wrote in his book. Right? I don't know if everyone knows that the book of James was not the Apostle James, right? There's an Apostle James, James the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, right? One of the, one of the two brothers whose mom asked Jesus, hey, could uh, one of my kids sit at your right or left hand? And Jesus is like, do you even know what you're asking? It wasn't that James, okay? The book of James is written by Jesus' physical, I guess we should say half-brother, right? Right. So James, check, check out what James says. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about what it took for the guy who didn't show up at the cross, the guy who wanted to take charge of him because he thought he was nuts, you know, the guy who did not believe in him. Oh, go show yourself to the crowd. You know, go show, prove yourself, big brother. Oh, you're, you're, you're the savior. And now to start his letter 
and address it and say, I am a servant of my brother who is Lord. I mean, talk about a transformation. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. James 5.8. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. He thought his brother was going to return again. Right. He thought his brother was the risen, resurrected Lord. And you know, we'll end with this. You know what the ultimate proof of James's belief? Yes, his words. But I don't know how many of you know how James died. Yeah, James was executed. Yeah. In 62 AD, Ananus, the high priest ordered James stoned for being a breaker of the law. Essentially, what did that mean? That meant being a believer in Jesus. He was breaking the law by believing that Jesus, it was blasphemous to believe that Jesus was Lord and Savior and Messiah. Ultimately, James went from someone not showing up into the cross to being killed for his belief in the resurrected Lord. And that's a transformation that transforms me every time I read about it. Because, and, and we could have studied out Jude, right? Jude was one of his brothers. Jude went from a disbelieving brother to writing a book of the Bible, right? We could have gone and looked at Mary. Mary didn't know what was going on, you know, for some of that time. And then she was completely a believer after the resurrection. Jesus' life, the resurrection of Jesus transformed all, all those that knew him. It transformed his family. And I love that Jesus said, a prophet is not accepted in his hometown or his home. Who are the hardest people to convert? Your family. Why? They know you. <laughs> oh, really? You're walking around church all, you know, all holy and stuff? Yeah, I remember what you did a year and a half ago. I remember what you said to Dad. You know? I mean, guys, no one knows you like family. And that's a wonderful thing. And that can be a difficult thing to overcome as well. But Jesus transformed his family. And as we're about to take communion, that's what the cross does, right? I mean, if you'd seen a resurrected human in front of your face, you would change, right? Our entire faith is based on the cross being real, right? We have no hope. <laughs> if this is all a hoax, we've got no hope and we're fools, you know? Although you could argue that just the tenets following the tenets are beautiful and help your life because they're solid tenets for life, but it's so much more beyond that. Right? Our hope is in the cross. Our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in Jesus being alive now, that we're his family now, that he's alive now, that we have a personal relationship now, that we are bonded in a special way other than just showing up 
at the Hilton in Burlington on a Sunday morning. There's something special through the Spirit because of Jesus and what he did at the cross. So as we take communion, I can't look at my wife because she's, <laughs> she's tearing up, so that makes me get emotional. Um, but as we take communion, guys, we have to think about the cross, the reality of Jesus. The physical person who grew up in a family like you was killed and then raised up to where Peter could, could where, where Thomas could put a, you know, a finger in his side and his finger in his, in his wounds, in his hand, you know? I mean, this happened, guys. And there's no other explanation that you went from a bunch of scared people, his disciples, a family that didn't believe him, to a worldwide movement. It's the transformative power of the resurrection. Let's celebrate that. Let's contemplate what that means for our lives this morning as we take communion. Let's pray. Dear God, we're so grateful uh, and honored to have the opportunity to be a part of your family, God, through Jesus and what he did on the cross. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you call us your brothers and sisters, not through anything that we have done, but through the sacrifice of the cross where you paid the full price for our sin. As we take the bread that represents your body that hung on the cross and the fruit of the vine that represents the blood that even now washes over every one of our sins, Lord, help us be grateful. Help us take to heart the reality of the cross, the reality of how it has transformed our life, the reality of the life that we are called to as your followers. Help us honor you at this time as we remember the cross. Help us go out from here and honor you with our lives as we call ourselves your disciples. We love you, Jesus. God, I pray that this time is is transformative for all of us. And wherever we are spiritually, if we're visiting today, God, I just pray that um, there's just a palpable sense of, uh, Lord Jesus, how much you love us, how much you've done for us, and the reality, the historical fact of the death, burial, and resurrection. We love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.